Well, good evening, church. It is a privilege to be here this evening, uh, especially on such a memorable day. Um, I, I feel like they finally got it right in naming a day, Good Friday, because indeed, indeed it is very good. Um, as I was looking at people as they were coming into the church, uh, there is this verse that came to mind. Psalm 83, for better is a day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would choose to stand at the threshold of the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. And I would rather be here than any other place at any time for any reason. So um, thank you guys for being here. My hope this evening is that we would look at the whole scope of Christ's humiliation. Usually when we're looking at um, a sermon on Easter or the uh, crucifixion, we're usually focusing on only the cross. My hope this evening is that we would look at the whole state of humiliation of Christ. Because Christ was humiliated not just at the cross, but from the moment he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary and ultimately consummated on the cross. That is the reason I picked Philippians 2, uh, verse 5 through 11. But let me pray before we read the word of God. Holy Father, I pray that you would grant us understanding from your holy scriptures and that we may receive it with gladness May your flock be strengthened by the preaching of your holy gospel. May the lost find Jesus Christ. But may above all else, may your son be glorified above all things. Jesus Christ who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. Philippians 2, verse 5 through 11. This is the word of the Lord. Have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, but being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. So just a simple introduction to this text. This is one of the most beautiful and theologically saturated passages from the New Testament. Uh, one could truly spend a long time in this passage. This passage has been called a hymn to Christ or a hymn to Christ as God because the language that Paul uses here is a poetic language like somebody would use as writing a song 
or a poem. This either became a hymn after Paul wrote it in Philippians, or it might have been a song he already written in the past. And what Paul is about to do in Philippians chapter 2 is that he's going to use this hymn, this poem, to encourage the church of Philippi to count each other as more important than themselves, to live humble lives and to look to Jesus Christ as the most amazing display of humility. And so this evening, I'm, my hope is that I will take you verse by verse and explain what this passage means. Verse 5, if you look at verse 5 in your Bibles. Have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Verse 6. Who, although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And so the Son, before He was incarnate, He was in the form of God. In the Greek, this is morphe theou. Morphe theou. Now, you didn't think you were going to get Greek on a Good Friday. But it's very important. Morphe theou. This is, from this, we get the word for metamorphosis. A change. Morphe theou. He was in the form of God. And the word form in the original language speaks of essential characteristics. And so according to this passage, the Son shared the very same essence as the Father. The NIV gets it right. Many times they get it right. Many times not so much. But this one they got it right. They put it, who being in the very nature of God who being in the very nature of God. And that's, that's exactly what this passage is getting at. And so the second person of the Trinity, who is Yahweh himself, not a third of Yahweh, Jesus is not the same person as the Father or the Spirit either, but the Son being of the same substance as the Father and the Spirit, one God now and forever. This is the Son who made all things who upholds all things, and who is the ruler of all things. Colossians 1.16 says that, For in Him, that is Christ, all things were created, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. Who else is the Creator, church, by Yahweh? And yet, Paul is using this language of Jesus Christ. He was in the form of God. Hebrews 1.3 says, Jesus is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature. Upholds all things by the word of His power. False religions and cults will ask, can you give me a verse that says that Jesus is God? I just gave you three verses in about three minutes. It is vastly clear from the Scriptures that Jesus Christ was Yahweh in the flesh. Not just a man who taught really good things, nor just a prophet. For of no prophet can it be said to be the creator of all things, and of no man can it be said to be in the form of God. That would be blasphemy. Verse 6. Jesus did not regard equality with God, in its context, he's talking about the Father. 
Jesus did not count equality with God, the Father, as something to be grasped or held on to. And now, as I was reading this, it struck me that the parallel with Adam in the garden is it's amazing. When the serpent came to Adam and Eve in the garden and said, if you eat of this fruit, you will be like God. And maybe they ponder and thought, maybe God is withholding something from us. The argument from this talking snake seems rather good. Maybe that should have been the warning sign to begin with. What was the sin in the garden? It was essentially that they believed the creature rather than the creator. They were not content with their position. But the serpent said, if you take of this fruit, you will be elevated to a greater position. And they believed the creature rather than the creator. But what does Christ do? Christ does the opposite of the first Adam. Christ, who was in the highest places, does not consider that equality with God as something to be grasped. But he humbles himself, the opposite of the first Adam. And so, Jesus, who is the second Adam, the better Adam, the one who instead of wanting and desiring more like the first Adam, gave up his position of glory and honor. It has been said that on the first tree, men died. But on that second tree, we were given new life. See that on the first tree, the first Adam failed and brought all of humanity into utter destruction and sin. But on that second tree, the second Adam, Jesus the Christ, triumphed over sin. Verse 7. But emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men. And when he says that, that he emptied himself, it does not mean that the Son ceased to be God or that Jesus laid aside his divinity temporarily. He continued to be God during his life. Second Corinthians 8.9 says that, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake... He became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And so Jesus Christ did not lay aside his divinity as heretics teach, but he simply lay aside his position of greatness and glory and honor and became as a slave with no benefits, with no rights. When it says that he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, the form of a servant, some of your translations might say, it says the form of a servant. This is the same Greek word, morphe, but instead of the you, it's morphe dulu, and the form of a slave. So he was in the form of God, now he's in the form of a servant, form of a slave. I like that the translation that I'm reading from, um, it says slave. And I think I like that translation because it emphasizes the fact that when Christ came here, he became fully obedient 
to all of the laws of God and the fact that slaves owned nothing. And did, what did Jesus own when he was on earth? This was the case of our Lord Jesus Christ on earth. He owned nothing. But before the incarnation, I want you to see the contrast. This is what Paul is getting at this, in this passage. The contrast of the heavenly and the earthly. In Isaiah 66, he says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is the footstool of my feet. So the one whose dwelling was in the heavens and owned everything, on earth he has no place to lay his head. He had no home, and he only had the clothes on his back. He didn't even have a donkey. He had to borrow one, as we learned last Sunday. He had nothing, and yet before the incarnation, he owned everything. This is true humility. Psalm 147 says that, Who counts the numbers of the stars, he gives names to all of them. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His discernment is infinite. And so the one who sat in the heavenly places, and to whom the angels and the saints sang, Holy, 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 and they gave all honor and glory and power in heaven. On earth, he's being ridiculed. He's being laughed at. He's being mocked by sinners. This is true humility. I looked up some examples of famous people being humble. I just, out of curiosity, what is it that people are out there, what would they recognize as somebody being humble? Okay, so this is, this is just somebody I found on the internets. Um, number one, Gandhi. It says, when it comes to embracing humility, Gandhi was the epitome, the greatest. He said that Gandhi was the greatest of all humility. He spent his life serving the poorest of the poor, and he carried human soul in his head, and apparently, and spun the wheel of, to make cloth, cotton cloth for himself. I didn't know anything about that. Seems right. And the second example is, believe it or not, former President Obama, he served food for the homeless during Thanksgiving. This is where people are going to look at an example of true humility that the president would give food to the homeless on Thanksgiving. Church, this is not even a first compar fair comparison. Obama and Gandhi don't even come close to a true example of humility, but this is the best unbelievers got. Christian, we have Jesus Christ our Lord who was in the highest places, God, and then he became man in the lowliest of places. Something that, hum that Christ, Christ's humility did not start until the crucifixion or maybe at the Garden of Gethsemane, but Christ's humiliation began from the moment he was conceived miraculously in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And I want to take you through his life and in what ways was Christ humble. Number one, he was born of a virgin. Imagine this, living in heaven, in the heavenly realm, 
and now dwelling in the womb of a Jewish teenage girl. And when, and when Jesus Christ was born, they didn't even put him in a nice, warm incubator like they did with my son. Where does Mary put Jesus Christ the Lord? In a feeding trough for animals. From the throne to a feeding trough. Number two, he subjected himself unto the law. Ask the God man. Galatians 4, 4 says, When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And the one who gave the law with mighty display of power on that mountain, with thunder, now he made himself subject to it. He said, I am going to obey all the law that I gave to Israel. And I will fulfill it. Unlike you and I, who have broken the law of God in every possible, conceivable way, when Christ made himself subject to it, he kept every single commandment, every law, perfectly in thought, word, and in deed. Number three, he underwent the mysteries of this life. Matthew 8, 20, we talked about this a little bit already. Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And just in passing, the, the title of Son of Man is not a title of his humanity. Go read Daniel 9. You know, Paul gives you homework every Sunday, so I figure I could give you homework to go read Daniel 9. When, when Christ says the Son of Man, this is a title of divinity. Go read Daniel 9. Number four, he received the wrath of God the Father on the cross and remained in the state of the dead for three days. One of the most beautiful verses that I can think of, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He, the Father, made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we, you and I, might become the righteousness of God in him. And we, we must understand that Jesus' punishment was not just physical or outward because Christ bore the full wrath of God, the Father, that you and I deserved and that unbelievers deserve. He bore it on himself, in his body and soul. And that is why his agony was so great in the Garden of Gethsemane. I want to take you to Matthew 27 and read from there some of the accounts of the true suffering of Christ. This is truly astonishing that he would do this. Matthew 27, 27. Then when the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium, they gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. And I read about this. A full Roman cohort is about 600 men. They gathered 600 men around Jesus Christ. What? Do you think they'll gather around him to celebrate? 
maybe to eat some bread and wine. This is what they did to him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. After twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed on his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat on him and took the reed and began to beat him on the head. When they had mocked him and they took the scarlet robe off of him and put his own garments back on him, they led him away to be crucified. And dear Christian, our Lord underwent these mysteries of this life. For you, Christ did this for you and for me out of pure, undefiled, sheer grace. Did you deserve this? Lutheran, Luther, the Protestant reformer, and one of my personal heroes of the faith, said, every Christian needs to learn to say the words for me. And even the Apostle Paul says the same in Galatians 2.20. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Christians usually tend tend to talk about Christ's death in such general terms, like Jesus died for us, Jesus died for our sins. And sometimes we make the atonement so abstract that we forget the personal aspect of the atonement. That on that cross, Jesus was bearing the wrath of God for the punishment of your sin, not just for the sins of people as in a blob of sins. He bore that punishment for you. And that's what Luther says is so important. When you, once you understand this, it changes your life. Because you make the atonement in the gospel personal. Number eight, verse eight. Jesus, being found in appearance as a man... He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, this does not mean that he only appeared appeared to be a man. Youth group could tell you, because we talked about that on Tuesday night. This is one of the ancient heresies. He did not assume the form of a servant while looking like an angel, right? When he became in the form and the morphe dulu, the form of a servant, he looked like a man because he was a true man. But the ancient heresies, they say he was God, but he had a spiritual body. He was just floating around. And what does that do to the gospel? Let me read John 1.14 says, because John is very clear. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Why um, was it necessary that the Son take every aspect of human nature? Let's say, was it necessary that the Son of God take upon a human mind, 
and a human soul and a human will. Why was this necessary? An early church father and another one of my heroes said, when he was uh, debating the Gnostics in the early church, said that that which is not assumed is not redeemed. And so Christ took upon himself a human mind so that he might redeem the human mind. And he took upon himself a human will so he might redeem the human will. Verse 8, I continue in verse 8. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And so Christ lived a life of utter obedience unto God. He kept the law, the whole law, what has been thought to be 613 commandments. Christ kept them all. I have a question for you. Why did Christ keep all the commandments? Was it so that he might become righteous? Was it so that he would be found righteous? And when Christ said, I've come to fulfill the law, did he, did he come to fulfill the law so that he would become righteous? I hope the answer is no, right? He did not, he did not fulfill every commandment so that he become righteous. Because the son was righteous by nature, he was holy and blameless by nature. So why does he keep the commandments? I like your questions tonight. You're asking good questions. He kept all the commandments so that you and I might receive the benefits of the commandments he kept for us. Have you kept all the commandments lately? Have you kept one commandment lately? How about in the past five minutes? Have you loved God perfectly in the last five minutes? But guess what? For the Christian, Christ loved perfectly. Christ loved his neighbor perfectly. Christ loved God the Father perfectly. He never stole anything. He never insulted nor belittled anybody. He never looked with lust. He kept all these commandments. He fulfilled them perfectly. The sin of lust, the sin of stealing, the sin of pride, he kept them all. And then when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, it's as if Christ gives you those commandments to you as if you had kept them perfectly. And that is why you're righteous uh, before the Father. How do we receive these benefits? We receive them by faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from works, so that no one may boast. Isn't it amazing that the one who didn't need to obey, obeyed everything? And this he did for you and I. In other words, Jesus didn't just die for you. He lived a life of obedience for you. And the righteousness we, that he purchased, the spirit 
applies in our hearts. Heidelberg, this is Heidelberg Catechism, question 60. Go read Heidelberg 60. We have the hymnals that we have. Heidelberg Catechism is there. It's so wonderful. Uh, this is the last part of uh, um, question 60. He says, um, God grants and credits to me perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner and as if I had been perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me if I only accept this gift with a believing heart. The last part of verse 8. Even death on a cross. Crucifixion was a form of capital punishment. And this was limited to uh, non-Roman, non-Romans and the worst of criminals. So if you were a Roman, they thought, well, he's a Roman. He can be crucified because it's so utterly disgusting. Crucifixion wasn't even technically a method of killing. It was a method and a form of torture. And this torture would eventually lead to death, usually by asphyxiation. And it usually took one, two, three days. Yet Christ only lasted hours on the cross. And this was because he was beaten so brutally, as we read before, probably by 600 Roman soldiers, as far as we can tell. That's a Roman cohort. This is what Louis Burkhoff says about the crucifixion and his systematic theology. Crucifixion was reserved only to the scum of mankind, to the meanest criminals and slaves. By dying that death, Jesus met the extreme demands of the law. At the same time, he died an accursed death and thus gave evidence of the fact that he became a curse for us. In Galatians 3.13 says the same. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And so according to this verse, Jesus Christ became a curse for you. Some say, God is not fair. Why are some saved and not others? Why is it that, you know, he just, just doesn't save everybody? God is not fair. I've had that so many times. You know what? If God were fair, you and I would deserve the full wrath of God for our sins. If God were fair, we would deserve his justice. And you and, and, you and I would have to bear our own cross and keep the whole law. If God was really fair, with no mercy and no justice... He would say, you die for your own sins, and you keep the whole law if you want to be with me. But God is merciful and full of compassion. And guess what? You do not have to be crucified for your sins. Christ was crucified for you. You do not have to keep the whole law perfectly. You can't. But Christ kept the commandments for you. 
In closing, I want to read the crucifixion account in John 19. John 19, 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had been already finished, in order to finish the scripture, said, I am thirsty. A jar, of full, uh, a jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when he had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. It is done. The debt has been paid. And bowing down his head, he gave up his spirits. And when we think of the crucifixion, it is horrendous. It really is. Even though Christ in his humanity did not want to do this, and that's why his suffering at the garden was so great, Hebrews 12.2 12, 12, says that he did it because of the joy that was set before him. Isn't that amazing? It says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Guess what? Being crucified is not pretty. It is a shameful act. Usually, they were naked on the cross. He became ashamed, despising the shame. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Good Friday is a day when we, when we realize the severity of our own sin. And we often feel sad. I think it is a good thing to realize the extent of our sin and misery. I think we should do that. Because if there's no bad news, there can't be good news. If there's no bad news, there's no good news, Christian. As you leave this Friday tonight, and we'll have the Lord's Supper, what a great way to celebrate the death of our Lord but by taking the supper. But as you leave this Friday night and seek to come back for Resurrection Sunday, I want to leave you with some of the most beautiful statements of the Christian faith again in the Heidelberg Catechism, question number one. They ask, what is your only comfort in life and in death? My comfort is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has delivered me from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to Him. Christ, by His Holy Spirit, also assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
Our gracious Heavenly Father, who, out of sheer grace, you send your dear Son to die for your people, for your sheep, for your flock, for your beloved ones. And that Christ, being obedient to the full law, he became obedient to the point of death on the cross. He became accursed for us. There are no words to describe the thankfulness from our hearts other than believing and trusting in his work. May, may you, with, through the Holy Spirit, strengthen our faith by receiving the elements tonight, the bread and wine. Thus, as we truly hold the elements in our hands, so truly you have forgiven all of our sins. Jesus Christ, all glory and the praise be to you. You are truly worthy of all of our praise. Amen.